Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. My name is Philip Munoz. I'm the director of Notre Dame's Program of Constitutional Studies, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to uh, today's event. Um, this uh, lecture is taking place during my constitutional law class, um, actually here from the Notre Dame Stadium. So I want to thank my uh, students who are behind me here uh, for sharing their class with the Notre Dame community and for all those who are uh, indeed watching via Zoom. Uh, thank you all for joining us. Um, we'll have, uh, we should have time for a Q&A, uh, both from the students here that are gathered in class and also for those watching via Zoom. Um, if you're watching via Zoom and want to ask a question, just use the raise hand function. Uh, and we'll uh, get to questions after uh, the lecture. Um, I'm absolutely thrilled uh, that we have Professor Bailey uh, with us to lecture on COVID in the Constitution. As I, I just told my class, he's one of, uh, he's his generation's leading scholar on the presidency and American political thought. Uh, we have a, a tradition here in the program where we have a student introduce uh, our speakers properly. So let me bring uh, to the front of the camera, uh, Corinne Carlson. She's a sophomore and a PLS major here at Notre Dame. Corinne. Good afternoon. Professor Jeremy D. Bailey holds a dual appointment in political science and the Honors College at the University of Houston. His research in interests include executive power, constitutionalism, and American political thought and development. He has published extensively on these topics, including most recently, the idea of presidential representation in intellectual and political history. He is also an editor of American Political Thought, a journal of ideas, institutions, and culture, published quarterly by University of Chicago Press. Please join me in welcoming Professor Bailey today for his lecture on a topic quite important to all of us, coronavirus and the Constitution. Thank you. All right, thank you, uh, first of all, to, to, to Professor Munoz uh, for having me and to uh, you all for, for having me. Um, it's, a, it's a real uh, treat. This is the closest I've been to Notre Dame's football stadium. And so uh, hopefully one day I'll get even closer. Um, my assigned topic is COVID and the Constitution. This is a constitutional law class. And so my job is to provide an introduction to thinking about ways that the pandemic of 2020 raises questions about the Constitution of 1787. I do not pretend to be an expert on public health or to have anything especially original to say about the policy response to COVID. In fact, so far, the most interesting constitutional debates have been about restrictions on religious liberty under the First Amendment, specifically state limits on gatherings and religious congregations. Given that you have one of the very best scholars in the country on that question as your professor in this course, I'll not attempt to shed light on those debates. Instead, I'll use the occasion to reflect on the question of public health and its relationship to emergency powers under the Constitution. Now, my first point is that when, when we speak about the Constitution, we speak about its specific language and provisions that have been debated since the 1790s. We therefore speak about the Constitution by invoking the arguments made by winners and losers of those debates. We do so because the Constitution, like any Constitution, is in some form a contract that states the boundaries around governmental power. Just like one contract may differ from one, one another for another, one constitution may have different boundaries than another constitution. 
This is not to say that any constitution, and even our constitution as well, this is to say that, this, that, that our constitution is an invitation to think about constitutionalism itself. Constitutionalism is the great check against what we might call constitutionism. To put it differently, when we reflect on the larger question of constitutionalism, and that is whether we can indeed resolve to live it by an agreement made by reflection and choice instead of by accident and force, we can see that our constitution shares a problem that every constitution shares. Right, next slide, please. That problem, as Harvey Mansfield put it, is that no set of laws can, is perfect with respect to the future. No constitution can predict what emergency or opportunity will arise, and therefore no constitution can settle every question in advance. Nor is it likely that a constitution can settle who gets to settle that question. Thus, a fundamental question facing any constitution is what does that constitution do with its necessary incompleteness? The concept of public health is yet another reminder of this necessary fact. And yet public health might be even more difficult because public health, like war, calls into question the premise of limited government itself. At the heart of limited government, and therefore at the heart of constitutional government, is the distinction between private and public life. Now, John Locke famously grounded constitutional government on the urgency of securing certain natural rights. But from a certain angle, this grounding looks like a sensible decision to separate certain public questions from private ones by delegating our natural right to punish, punish those people who violate our rights. Or to put it differently, the reason why we need a social contract arranged under settled and standing laws enforced by a common judge is that we need to resume what we really want to do, which is likely involves acquiring and improving property or making money. The problem is that private life is not simply private during times of war or during times of pandemic. That is the distinction between self-regarding and other-regarding other is even more blurred than usual. What I normally do in private life may now have negative consequences on the public, and these negative consequences, because they may involve existential threat, are more clear and more pressing than the normal negative consequences that are subject to our normal differences of opinion. For example, differences of opinion on regarding the question of the good life, the acceptable level of inequality, and so on. Now, that emergency is part of this question is, I think, self-evident. Uh, next slide, please. But it can be confirmed by reflection on the language of Justice Gorsuch and his concurring opinion in Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn, New York, versus Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, 2020. This was decided last fall. Now, Justice Gorsuch went out of his way to note his earlier disagreement, his, his disagreement with Chief Justice John Roberts, who was in the minority in this case. Earlier in the year, Roberts was part of a court majority, the South Bay Pentecostal Church versus Newsom, that upheld the California restriction on gatherings in churches. That majority included Justice Ginsburg. The more recent decision included uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Now, in his concurring opinion, Gorsuch began by announcing that government is not free to disregard the First Amendment in times of crisis. That's a quote. Pointing to the earlier decision, he noted that the passage of time was itself a reason to revisit the decision in the California case. He said, at that time, COVID had been with us in earnest for just three months. Now, as we round out 2020 and face the prospect of entering a second calendar year, living in the pandemic shadow, that rationale has expired according to its own terms. Even if the constitution has taken a holiday during this pandemic, it cannot become a sabbatical. Moreover, Gorsuch argued that the earlier majority was wrong to ground its logic on Jacobson versus Massachusetts, 
which was a 1905 case in which the Supreme Court allowed a Massachusetts law requiring smallpox vaccinations for, the, for healthy people. As he put it, that decision involved an entirely different mode of analysis, an entirely different right, and an entirely different kind of restriction. Because the liberty in question was not as clear as this one, and because the vaccination law had various opt-out provisions, the 1905 case offered little clarity about the constitutionality of Cuomo's actions with respect to churches. As Gorsuch saw it, it is time, past time, he said, to make plain that while the pandemic poses many grave challenges, there's no world in which the constitution tolerates color-coded executive edicts that reopen liquor stores and bike shops, but shutter churches, synagogues, and mosques. Now this language, Gorsuch's language, that the constitution does not and cannot give way during an emergency is part of our constitutional fabric. You could find it in Justice Davis's rebuke of Abraham Lincoln and ex parte Milligan, and in Justice Kennedy's rebuke of George W. Bush in Boumediene. The truth is, as the earlier of the 2020 cases reminds us, sometimes the court is willing to look the other way during emergencies, at least until it has a better sense of whether the emergency is actually an emergency and whether the deprivation of liberty in question is grounded in a sensible or rational policy. Now there's a scholarly literature that attempts to understand judicial behavior on precisely this question. This liter literature raises important questions, but my attention here is elsewhere. Indeed, what's worth noting in Gorsuch's bold invocation of liberty is how radically inadequate it is. Like those by Justice Davis and Justice Kennedy before him, it's inadequate. These ringing invocations sound good, and to those of us who care about liberty, it is reassuring, of course, to hear that the Constitution does not go on sabbatical. But they nevertheless obscure a fundamental problem of constitutional politics. In this, they are quite like statements of faith, statements that might not capture reality itself. Okay. Now, the men who made the Constitution understood two things to be necessary for constitutionalism and limited government. One was separation of powers and the other was federalism. Borrowing from Locke, these men presumed that the person who made the laws could not be the same person who executed the laws. Whether or not they are right about this assumption is a question that would have to be addressed elsewhere. Now, as we see, the question of COVID in the Constitution points to a confusion in our own constitutional practice of separation of powers. But this confusion is already well known. We're already well aware of it. It's the problem of delegation and so-called unilateral executive power. Now, the other necessary feature of limited government of the framers was federalism. But this was less of a philosophic inheritance and more of a historical or customary one. As you know, the Constitution was advertised as neither wholly national nor wholly federal. Where the national government is authorized, it acts directly on individuals themselves. Where it is not, it is the states instead of the power to act directly on those individuals. Now, it's of course more complicated than that. And we know that this is the fault line of American political thought and development. My best advice here generally is to believe no one who offers a clear resolution of these problems. After all, in Federalist number 37, James Madison went out of his way to say that drawing such a line was pretty much impossible especially when using human words to define institutions created by humans. That being said, and as you know, the traditional argument is that under the Constitution, the states reserve to themselves the vast array of so-called police powers. And these, these police powers include regulations regarding health, safety, and morality. Now, it should be mentioned, however, that reasonable people can differ about whether the relationship regarding police powers is a necessary feature of limited government. 
And on this note, I'd point to the fact that when James Madison lost on his proposal for a negative on state laws, that is when Madison lost his proposal to vest in Congress a veto authority over state laws at the Constitutional Convention, it was because his opponents argued that such a move would be clearly out of bounds because it would undermine the police powers within the individual states. For example, on June 8th, Hugh Williams in North Carolina said that he was, quote, against giving a power that might restrain the states from regulating their internal police, end quote. On July 17th, Roger Sherman of Connecticut proposed, proposed a revision that the national government would not be able to, quote, interfere with the government of the individual states in any matters of internal police, end quote. On August 22nd, on behalf of a committee formed to propose a solution to the problem of existing state debts, John Rutledge of Georgia reported a provision that would exclude from Congress's power over the general welfare those matters, quote, which respect only the internal police of the states or for which their individual authorities may be competent, end quote. On September 15th, the last day of debate, Sherman attempted again to include this protection in a section that would limit the amendment power to guarantee that, quote, no. Now, you might be thinking, to be sure, these proposals did not make their way into the Constitution, in part because men like Governor Morris thought, as he said on July 17th, quote, the internal police, as it would be called and understood by the states, ought to be infringed in many cases, end quote. And as we know, James Madison wanted the Constitution to curb the powers of the states, and he remained grumpy about the defeat of his negative until his death 50 years later. Moreover, it's not clear that public health measures were seen in the early republic as a threat to limited government. As we are now revisiting histories of public health, we know that many of the influential men, men like Washington, Adams, Jefferson, etc., were supporters of inoculation against smallpox, even as their counterparts were skeptical of the medical expertise involved. And so much of the politics here was part of the contest between the enlightenment science of the few against the prejudice of the many. Washington famously had his army inoculated during the revolution, as did Jefferson of his family and enslaved population at Monticello. In fact, one of Jefferson's early clients as a young lawyer was a doctor whose house was burned by rioters uh, who were rioting against inoculation. In 1813, the Jeffersonian majority in Congress passed a law, an act to encourage vaccination, which created an agent to distribute the vaccine and set up free shipping from the post office. The act was repealed a few years later when the agent used incorrect materials and several people died. This is not to say that these examples demonstrate any constitutional principles. And to be sure, the context of wartime and each and slavery would not ease the concerns arising from limited government. But all this is a reminder first of the extent to which the rights revolution in the 20th century has chipped away at the foundation of police powers in the states and secondly, that the traditional distinction concerning police powers is not a necessary one, but rather is contingent and accidental and is particular to our unique history. Even if this is true, it seems to be the case that this role of the states is an enduring one. And it's something of a surprise that it endures in so, some form, and I would say in so much so today. With the exception of the standard demagogic flair that we've come to expect from our presidential candidates, Joe Biden's one-time promise for a mask mandate has more or less been a non-story. This is to say that even Democrats have more or less conceded that the prime movers regarding lockdowns and masks are the governors, not the president or Congress. 
This seems to me just a remarkable feature of, Amer of the American Constitution, or rather, I should say, a remarkably enduring feature of our tradition of federalism. Uh, next slide, please. Let me turn to separation of powers. We can begin with Biden's other campaign promise, namely to use the Defense Production, Production Act of 1950 to meet the demands of COVID. Now, during the campaign, it wasn't exactly clear what had, Biden had in mind here because Trump did use the act, I think 18 times. Uh, to be fair, Trump hesitated to use it, and it's possible he did not use it as expansively as Biden had in mind. Now, since Biden has been president, this has become somewhat more clear in the sense that Biden has used the Defense Production Act to increase production of the vaccine, I think especially with respect to the Johnson and Johnson, Johnson, Johnson vaccine. So what does the act do? The law was passed in response to Truman's announcement of war in Korea. Congress delegated the president broad powers to control the economy, especially to organize production of raw materials to manage the war effort, ease rules regarding contracts, institute consumer quotas and rations, and to establish wage and price controls if necessary. Now, Congress has allowed the more controversial aspects of the law, especially the wage and price controls, to lapse in 1953, but Congress has repeatedly reauthorized the remaining portions of the statute. Presidents use this statute all the time to secure defense contracts, presumably allowing defense officials to get around the constraints of other re regulations on federal contracts. So what we have is a statute passed for national defense during a war, national defense during a war, an undeclared war, but a war nonetheless, that is still halfway on the books and has become semi-normal for defense spending. That statute is now being used for securing contracts for COVID response. Now there's one more wrinkle to this, and that wrinkle is that progressives have long wanted greater control over prescription drug prices. And with the expansion of the Defense Production Act to vaccines, it seems inevitable that Biden will be asked to use that authority to regulate drug prices more generally. Given that Congress has explicitly let the wage and price control as part of the law expire, such an action surely would be on questionable legal foundation. But this is not to say it won't happen. Now, all this should be slightly worrying, I think, in the same way that Trump's executive order declaring an emergency served as a legal pathway for moving money around to build a wall that Congress would not otherwise fund. Next slide, please. The truth is that this is how many executive orders work. They rely on prior statutory authorization, authorization that an older Congress left lying around for some future president to use. If we have a problem with this, the solution is rather simple. Congress can simply change the statutes at any time Congress she pleases. Now on this note, what is I think interesting here is that the lesson of separation of powers is now playing itself in this out in the states. But here the legislature seem more willing or at least more able to revisit their delegations of authority to the executive branch. There are news reports throughout the country of state legislatures considering legislation stripping their governors of the very emergency powers those governors have used throughout the pandemic. In my own state of Texas, this seems fairly likely. Uh, next slide, please. Now, let me return to the observation by Mansfield that I mentioned earlier. As he put it, constitutions are doomed to be incomplete because they cannot see the future. The question is, what does a constitution do about it? Uh, next slide. Justice Robert Jackson famously reflected on this question in his concurring opinion in Youngstown and his, in his dissenting opinion in Korematsu. 
Let me quote from the latter. Much is said of the danger to liberty from the army program from deporting and detaining these citizens of Japanese extraction. But a judicial construction of the due process clause that'll sustain this order is a far more subtle blow to liberty than the promulgation of the order itself. A military order, however unconstitutional, is not apt to last longer than the military emergency. Even during that period, a succeeding commander may revoke it all. But once a judicial opinion rationalizes such an order to show that it conforms to the Constitution, or rather rationalizes the Constitution to show that the Constitution sanctions such an order, the court for all time has validated the principle of racial discrimination in criminal procedure and of transplanting American citizens. The principle then lies about like a loaded weapon, ready for the hand of any authority that can bring forward a plausible claim of an urgent need. Every repetition embeds that principle more deeply in our law and thinking and expands the new purposes. Jackson's concern here lies not simply with the injustice of the order that he believes to be racist, but also with the presidential danger arising from the emergency. Indeed, one possible reading of Jackson's opinion is that judges should have looked the other way. Now, this is troubling because it suggests that there are some occasions when the public good requires that judges turn a blind eye to actions that the government takes. But in this implicit, implicit confession, and this is my argument, lies a constitutional analysis that is superior to the one we see in Gorsuch and his predecessors. It is not enough to announce the Constitution cannot go on sabbatical. Constitutions indeed have to be pushed aside when contingency demands it. Moreover, there's the, the, the question about the consequences for the Constitution in one's normal life and with it the Constitution returns. Hence Jackson's concern about precedent and judicial decision-making. In this, Jackson is taking part, and I would agree not accidentally, in a debate that rests at the center of our constitutional tradition. This debate arises as competing solutions to Mansfield's problem of constitutional incompleteness. Its two great spokespersons are Hamilton and Jefferson. And next slide, please. For Hamilton and his followers, the solution to this problem was a proper disposition towards the Constitution. This disposition requires that the Constitution and all constitutions be read as attempts to construct good governments. And by this, we can say strong, effective, and stable governments. That is, constitutions must be read as if they are meant to create governments that demand our respect and admiration. This has very important implications for the problem of emergency. Next slide, please. In Federalist uh, number 25, Hamilton explained that wise politicians will be cautious about fettering the government with restrictions that cannot be observed. Because they, that is wise politicians, know that every breach of the fundamental laws, though dictated by necessity, impairs that sacred reverence which ought to be maintained in the breast of rulers towards the constitution of a country and forms a precedent for other breaches where the same plea of necessity does not exist at all, or is less urgent and palpable. To put it uh, in brief, Hamilton believes that the a constitution in order to be a constitution must be able to include all the uh, problems that might arise. Next slide, please. Thomas Jefferson suggested a different solution. To be sure, he recognized that the law would have to give way during emergencies or even opportunities. So in 1810, he answered a letter saying that, yes, there would be times that um, uh, an officer in high trust would have to go uh, beyond the law because self-preservation um, uh, would be more important. Um, but unlike Hamilton, this fact of political life rests outside the Constitution, according to Jefferson. So next slide. 
This is written to a Jeffersonian senator in the context of the Louisiana Purchase. The executive in seizing the fugitive occurrence, which so much advances the good of the country, had done an act beyond the Constitution. The legislature, in casting behind them metaphysical subtleties and risking themselves like faithful servants, must ratify and pay for it. He goes on to say, um, 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 it, is, it is like um, uh, that they're doing author, unauthorized for the country what they would have done for themselves if they're in a situation to do it. It is the case of a guardian investing the money of his ward and purchasing an important adjacent territory and saying to him when of age, I did this for your good. I pretend no right to bind you. You may disavow me. I must get out of the scrape as I can. The reason for Jefferson's position, next slide please, lies in his preference for a constitution with clear limits. So when an instrument, when a constitution emits two constructions, the one safe, the other dangerous, the one precise, the other indefinite, I prefer that which is safe and precise. I'd rather ask an enlargement of power for the nation where it is found necessary than to assume it by a construction which would make our powers boundless. Our peculiar securities in the possession of a written constitution. So let us not make it blank by construction. So in Jefferson's view, constitutions had to be read so they'd not be made blank by construction. So when presented with two interpretations, one dangerous and one indefinite, the other safe and precise, it is better to prefer the safe and precise interpretation, even if that requires even an enlargement of authority by way of an amendment or an approval after the fact. Uh, next slide, please. Apply to the Constitution. Uh, looking forward uh, later on your syllabus to Lincoln. We see these two views located um, um, in the uh, yes camp by saying the vesting clause of Article Two and the President's oath of office locate some of this authority uh, in the executive. Um, and then we have the no camp saying that those are um, uh, unsafe ways to read the Constitution. Now, in closing. Let me say this, the status of police powers in the states is a notoriously vague spot in our constitutional order. COVID serves as a reminder that public health presents a potential difficulty for limited government, as it blurs the distinction between private and public, between self-regarding and other regarding behavior. But it is also vague because our system is, as Madison put it, neither wholly federal nor wholly national. As he explained in Federalist Number 37, drawing the line between the legislative authority of the states and the legislative authority of the nation is just about impossible. Our words will never be precise enough to fully capture the nature of our neither wholly national nor wholly federal constitution. In this space, the question of emergency lurks. It is not enough to declare that the constitution is meant for all times. We, we, we must instead also consider how and when and why the Constitution must go on sabbatical. I'll leave it at that for now. And thank you, Professor Bailey. Turn the screen. Uh, let me invite any students who have any questions. And again, if you're watching uh, online and you have questions, use the raise hand function. Um, well, I students come on up if you have questions. Uh, Jeremy, let me get a question in while we wait for others. 
uh, I wonder if you could put your two points together, um, the point about federalism and then uh, the, the point about prerogative power. Um, is, fed, is prerogative power less dangerous in a federal republic? That is prerogative power exercised by governors. You know, there are 50 governors. Uh, uh, one, because of the, well, one, the, just they're governing a smaller territory, but two, and then you have the examples of other governors who are not using the same prerogative powers. We better judge prerogative powers. But what, I wonder if you could put together your defense of prerogative with federalism and how does federalism impact the, the uh, justification of prerogative power? Okay, yeah. So um, I, I guess I meant it in two ways. And, and, and for, first is the, is, 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 is the way that, that, that you mentioned, which I didn't really elaborate, but, but um, there are 50 different opportunities for 50 different um, um, intrusions on um, rights or, or the written law by, by way of 50 different executives. Um, and um, that seems to have both costs and benefits, but, but yeah, so certainly there's the, one, one of the, one of the questions is, 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 is you know, does it, does it multiply the opportunity for prerogative? And it, and it seemed, it seems so. Um, the other, the other point, and this is the point that I would, that I think that I was trying to, to emphasize a little bit more was that uh, there's ne something necessarily indeterminate about, about federalism. Um, and there's also something necessarily indeterminate about police powers. Uh, one, one arises from a problem of the delegation of authority um, to some common judge to, to police the behavior of others. And I, I can't list all those things that I delegate, right? And so, so that's, that's, a, that's a problem just in the theory of a constitution and, and the theory of, 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 of um, getting rid of my executive power over, over punishment and give, giving that over to someone else. So that uncertainty is already there. Uh, federalism multiplies that uncertainty by um, opening up this vast um, question about who actually is in control. Uh, or to put it differently, um, in that really weird passage in Curtis Wright, Sutherland talks about uh, the powers of external sovereignty uh, never, never disappearing, uh, that they have to go somewhere. Well, that raises the questions of the powers of internal sovereignty and, and how, how do you, how do you uh, identify them? And our tradition of police powers is, is one way that we've sorted that out. But, but as, as, as we know, these, these are really uh, difficult to, to, to theorize in advance. So uh, my, my point there is that the necessary indeterminacy of federalism adds the necessary indeterminacy of police powers. And those two things together um, seem like a, uh, a reminder that prerogative is never going to go away. Soren, do we have any questions uh, online yet? Questions from the students? Come on up. Let me give you. Hi, uh, Professor Bailey. <clears throat> Thank you so much for coming out and talking to us. Um, so I had a question in terms of uh, more or less the advantages and disadvantages of our governmental system in responding to crises of public health. Um, so you talked a little bit about how there are really two kind of interpretations in terms of how to deal with it on a federal level and on a state level. So I was curious to hear how, kind of what your thoughts are on the disadvantages of our unique constitutional system 
and responding quickly and effectively to crises of public health? Well, um, I've, I've, I've done a little bit of reading of some, some public health journals that they reflect on that. And the answer from their perspective is that it, it works terribly and needs to be dramatically changed. Um, and they stated <laughs> um, um, that that perspective is, is one that um, um, doesn't seem to be begin from a perspective of, um, of natural rights or limited government. It, it, it begins from a diff different starting place. And so, so if the question is, 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 is effectiveness, um, you know, the, the answer is that it's not very. And, and separation of powers and federalism is more or less going to guarantee that. So, so I think that's an easy question. Uh, not very, uh, and that's because of federalism and separation of powers. Up on that, what do you think uh, any uh, changes or demands will come about from this pandemic? Constitutional changes or changes in constitutional practice? No, I don't. Um, uh, I don't, I don't, I mean, um, well, well, the, 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 the interesting changes would be if states um, rethink the delegation of authority to executives. And I don't know much about that. It seems to me that be, uh, I would like to know what's going on to the extent that there's a political science literature on, on this. I think it's, it's just sort of beginning. Um, but on the national side, we know the dilemma that we're in and the dilemma is, is that in a context of polarization, Congress can't do anything. And because Congress can't do anything, presidents try to force uh, policy innovation as much as they can by way of executive order. Um, and because Congress can't um, gather the political will to rewrite the legislation that serves as the, as the, as the presumable backing for, for that executive action, um, presidents tend to get away with a lot of, of their stuff. Um, states are a different story and uh, it'd be interesting to see if um, um, you know, in single party states, New York or Texas, for example, uh, whether or not uh, that problem can be solved. Any questions from the audience here? Come on up. Stephen, introduce yourself. That's on. Hi, Professor. I'm Stephen. I was just curious, um, given the nature of this sort of emergency not being war-related, if that affects, in your judgment, how much granting and sort of abdication to the federal government and the executive versus if the government take an approach and treat this as like a foreign relations crisis and tried to gain more power that way. Do you think there's a relevant distinction in how much, uh, or basically who gets the power given that this was a health versus um, war crisis? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and the, reason for, the reason for that is that the states don't possess the power of external sovereignty. Uh, and according to, to sort of one way to think that through the state, the states never did, or at least that's, that's the, the position of, of Sutherland and, and Curtis Wright. Um, and so because the states never had the power of external sovereignty, they didn't delegate anything away in the Constitution of 1787. And so by that reading the Constitution of 1787, 
is uh, really just two things. One, it's a negotiation um, of where external sovereignty is going to go in the Constitution at the level of the national government. And then it's um, negotiation more fundamentally um, of the sharing of the powers of internal sovereignty, and that is uh, of, of, of things that happen inside uh, state boundaries. And, you know, as you um, will see in this course again and again and again, this question just arises, um, you know, in all sorts of ways by way of the Commerce Clause, by ways of questions of fundamental uh, liberties, uh, by way of the Spending Clause, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yes, it's absolutely critical that this is not a foreign policy question. It's rather a domestic policy question. Absolutely. Okay. I'm told that Jim Stoner, professor from Louisiana State, has a question. Jim, can you unmute yourself and ask your question? I, I think I just did. Um, uh, thank you for a great talk, Jeremy, and uh, uh, let your students know how privileged they are to have had that. I guess they know that already. Um, here's my question. Chris DeMuth, uh, formerly of the American Enterprise Institute, wrote a piece last summer where he said it's really remarkable that President Trump didn't invoke more federal power in response to the emergency because in general, Republican or Democrat in the past had responded to emergencies by invoking federal power uh, rather than leaving matters to the states. And he saw this as a great sort of sign for federalism. Do you think that had someone else won, had the Democrats won the election in 2016, there would have been a very different response at the beginning of the pandemic. And then now the fact that, uh, well, I don't know what it means now. You said uh, Biden invoked a mask mandate, uh, uh, but just as a sort of campaign throwaway line. Uh, and maybe that's because Americans have actually grown quite comfortable with having the power exercised at the level of the state. So do you think it would have been the same response by the other party? And uh, how do you think this is going to play out for the future in relation to federalism as well as to the question of emergency? You know, I don't, you know, these, these are, I, I haven't thought hard enough about these questions to, to, to think through the, the sort of the, 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 the road not traveled. Um, the, again, just to, to restate my, my surprise that, that just, again, I think this is the way you're saying is just how, how enduring American federalism has, has been on, on this and that Americans have put up with um, differences um in states and, you know, um, maybe some Americans shake their fist at, at other states and uh, at least do so on Twitter or something. But, but largely we, we've, we, we've put up with, you know, differences. Um, and um, so that, so what, what I don't, um, what I don't understand is um, Trump's, reticence about the national defense or the defense production act and Biden's complaint about the rest, uh, um, uh, reticence, uh, at the level of actual, uh, sort of, sort of, how do you get from here to there? Um, I'm not sure like what, what the reticence, what the source of the reticence is or what could have been done had, had, had there been no residence reticence whatsoever. It seems to me, I think what we're talking about is basically, uh, faster moves on producing, um, you know, face masks or something like that, uh, force forcing industries to do that. In retrospect, 
maybe that wasn't that big of a deal, right? After all. Um, now, uh, I, do, I do wonder, um, you know, had there been a different Supreme Court um, with, with your scenario, uh, then, then, then I think the surprising uh, enduring features of American federalism may, may not be waiting down that road. Jim, do you want to follow up? Uh, no, that's, uh, that's fine. Thank you. Good, good mm -hmm. answer. Jeremy, can I push you a little bit on the, on the federalism? Um, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Texas, where you are, has opened up now. Um, you know, I have no idea. Maybe it's going to be a disaster in Texas. Maybe it's going to be great. Uh, but the fact that uh, here in Indiana, we can use Texas as an experiment without exper experimenting ourselves, uh, isn't that advantageous, at least to those who are not in Texas? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, uh, federalism is really cool for, 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 for gathering data. Uh, so, so if your goal is to gather data, then yeah, that, that's really, that's really uh, awesome. Um, obviously, um, you know, one wonders um, if, if that's the only good uh, that's out there, but, um, um, but I guess maybe more seriously, you know, um, if, if your concern is liberty, if your concern is public health, being able to have uh, states try different things um, under the presumption that they're, you know, seriously trying to come up with sensible solutions is, is probably a sensible policy uh, way to think through it. I guess my, my point is, is that um, um, it really is uh, fascinating just to watch just how unclear we are about how the Constitution resolves these things. Uh, with the exception of this kind of expectation that the states have control over the police powers and therefore over public health. Uh, and that, that, that is just a remarkable thing. Okay, Patrick Lee has a question. Patrick, can you unmute yourself? Yes. Um, thank you, Professor Bailey, for coming and talking to us. I have a, just a quick question about um, kind of the climate surrounding these police powers that you're talking about. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering why when mask mandates uh, became a regulation and a suggestion by the CDC and were adopted by the various states, it seemed it was at that point that Americans became averse to wearing them. Um, I'm wondering if you could give any comments around kind of like the ethos and how we're ingrained, like you just mentioned, um, maybe with yourself in Texas, uh, Texas is a state that obviously loves liberty. And as we all Americans do, um, if you could just talk about why that seems to be our priority, whereas other nations around the world who maybe don't have that kind of in their DNA as much have maybe had less problems integrating mask wearing or having like inserting that kind of police power into their society. Yeah, um, that there's a lot going on in your question and I'm not sure that I, um, there, there are at least two assumptions in there that I'm not sure that I can, I can, I can, I can accept in, or, in order to answer the, 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 the question. Um, the, the, with, what one assumption is, is why, why did the mask stuff become, become political? Um, I, th I think there, there's kind of an obvious answer to that question and there's a kind of a non-obvious answer to that question. The obvious answer to that question has to do with it being an election year and, um, and the, the current uh, polarized state of American politics, 
But, but I think, um, you know, my colleagues who do more empirical work on voting behavior would, would have a better, better, better understanding of, of those things. Um, whether or not, um, so, so assuming that polarization over something like a public health mandate um, is a problem, um, it seems like the problem has to do with polarization. So solving a problem would have, have something to do with polarization. The other thing I would say is that we all, we all witnessed in real time that, that public health is also a question of um, not simply of, of science, but, but, but of political um, judgment in terms of trying to figure out how to get the public to comply with, with, with the policy. Um, and, um, you know, the CDC made some missteps. And then there's the question of, of you know, how, how do you get, you know, the public to buy into to, to, to a policy that is maybe not designed to um, meet every situation, but nevertheless, in the aggregate, it's supposed to be good for all of us. And that's, I think, a difficult task uh, for, for public health professionals, um, especially in a free country. Okay, we have a question here from the class. Hi, Professor Bailey. Um, my name's Tess. So I just had a question um, about your perspective on the constitutionality of the COVID vaccine passport. Um, what's your opinion on that? If, is it an encroachment on liberty or what does the constitution say about that? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think, um, well, first of all, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have a, a, a very good answer uh, on the constitution other than I don't, I don't see a problem with it. Um, I, and I'll, and I'll, at the, at the risk of, of, of saying something really stupid, I, I, I see a, um, there's, a, you know, a possible um, uh, political path to something like this. And that is, uh, you know, um, make a such a passport also the same thing as uh, an ID for election purposes and gun purchasing. Uh, that way, you give different, 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 different groups of people different reasons to, to be for it. Um, uh, kind of, kind of grand bargain. But anyway, that's just sort of uh, idle political speculation on my part. Doesn't really answer your question. Um, I'm sure there are people who come up with good reasons why there shouldn't be a, a, a passport requirement. Um, I haven't really given it much thought. Can I, would, if it was to be done, would it be more constitutional if done um, state by state or a, a sort of national passport? Oh, well, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I mean, um, states require school children to be vaccinated. You have to produce evidence for it. You know, so that that's, doesn't seem altogether, you know, new, right? I think that's how that works. I mean, you have to provide documentation to, to, to a school, even private schools. And I think in every state, you know, that you've had vaccines. And so, so we do this already in some form. Cam White. Cam. Hi, Professor Bailey. Thank you for coming to speak to us. Um, my question is more on how the... I guess state of emergency is declared federally versus in a state. Um, and I guess also in terms of like declaring war versus declaring a state of emergency and why and how that constitutional process works. Uh, so I know like to declare war, you need congressional approval. Obviously the executive can do something for a certain number of days, uh, but after that it requires congressional approval. So I might've just been living under a rock 
but as far as I'm concerned, I don't remember Congress declaring a state of emergency. That seemed to usually be a federal thing. Uh, and oftentimes, for example, you said the executive will use that power to do something like a border wall, um, just moving money around uh, through their own executive orders. So I was wondering kind of, I guess, to summarize my question, what's the constitutionality behind or what's the constitutional process behind declaring war versus declaring a state of emergency? And kind of what have I missed? What am I missing? All right. So it's, let me let me first just uh, make make one reflection that I didn't um, say say in the moment, and that is that there is some there is there is something um, I think maybe not accidental in the phrase that we were taught. Um, at least I was taught to explain why Truman didn't have a declaration of war in the context of Korea, and that it was a police action. Uh, there's some, there's something, there's something um, wobbly about about this this word police uh, in, in, our, in our constitutional tradition. But anyway, to to, to your question, um, the war part's easy. Uh, we have wars all the time, and then we've only had a couple declared wars. Um, there are reasons for that. Maybe some have to do with the UN. Um, um, maybe some have to do with the Cold War. Um, I think the important point is, is, is whether or not, from the perspective of the Constitution, if we have authorized wars. And so from a certain perspective, the AUMFs in 2001 and 2002 uh, do some of the work of, of the Declaration uh, from, from the perspective of the Constitution. Now that introduces another problem, and that is that those AUMFs are abused. Uh, they're used beyond, beyond their mandate. Uh, this is the, the, the Gulf of Tonkin uh, resolution problem. Um, and it's similar to the problem in, on, on, on the domestic side, and that has to do with emergency. And that is we have a statutory process for the president uh, or the executive branch to declare emergencies. They happen all the time with respect to hurricanes and flus uh, and other diseases. And um, when Trump used it in the context of the wall, my impression was is that it was a kind of procedural gimmick that was unwarranted by the uh, spirit of the legislation, but uh, fit a larger pattern of other unwarranted uses of, of statutory delegations uh, to, to the president. And so um, it fits a larger pattern, both of your questions, the, the, the war power and the technical details of an emergency, you know, fit a larger uh, pattern in which we have uh, confusion about meet the, what is actually war, war, what is actually an emergency, emergency, legitimate wars, legitimate emergencies. Um, or actual wars, actual emergencies, uh, with that confusion enabled by the incentive for the president to invoke prior statutes to settle problems that he can't with the normal uh, statutory process and, and, and normal politics. Okay, we have another question in the, from the class here, Sean, and then Tyler Moore, I see you're waiting as well. So, Sean. Hey, Professor, uh, appreciate you coming out. Uh, I'm Sean Doyle. Um, so much of the uh, talk so far has been trending towards the uh, like more powers for you know uh, public health authorities, uh, you know 
centralization of this and centralization of that. And I'm, I'm just curious, like whether legislative or executive is centralization really the answer is concentration of power really the answer, especially when like we have Cuomo right now under a lot of fire for his, you know, serious mistakes uh, with the uh, nursing homes in New York. And then even if we look back at Katrina with Bush, so at the federal level and at the state level, concentration of power, like more government doesn't really seem to be the answer for me, uh, at least for my opinion. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so the two, two quick observations. Um, Hamilton's concern um, going back to even before the Constitution is that Americans would love their state and local governments more than they love their national government uh, because their state and lo local government would be where the action is. Um, and I know that all of you uh, cherish and, and love your local uh, DMV, uh, your Department of Motor Vehicles, or your, your driver's license and the like. Uh, I know that you, you, you think very fondly of them uh, since they're, they're, they're close to, um, you know, the important things in your life. But, but Hamilton's concern was, was that, that's, that the, the people would see their, their local governments, their state governments involved in their lives and therefore cherish them. And so when the national government acts, it needs to act like Colossus, he says. It needs, it needs to be overwhelming. It needs to demand the respect of ordinary people. And eventually, people will transfer that respect uh, to, to the national government. And so, so your question, I think, first of all, you know, um, um, invites a question about, you know, which is more likely uh, in situations uh, involving emergencies, whether it's a pandemic or, or, or a natural disaster of, 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 of which is more likely to command the respect of people <laughs> um, and um, which is more equipped to do so in a, in a efficient way. Second point I would say is that um, there does seem to be, maybe it's, I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna blame uh, media, um, with the availability of information that we, we have, there's, I think, a kind of natural impatience that um, uh, many of us have. Um, you'll, each of you will probably live in many different states. Uh, you will find it to be um, uh, unnerving and uh, annoying that you have to go to a new DMV every couple of years and deal with that. And at some point you might wish that it the DMV just is the national passport office or something like that. Like, why, why do I have to put up with these intrusions in, in, my, in my leisure time? Which is to say that there's something about federalism that defies um, the demand for rationality and systemization that, you know, lurks at the heart of our enlightenment project. And um, so you have to wonder you know, if, if, if the movement all is necessarily always going to go in the direction of the federal government. That's again why I expressed a, a kind of surprise uh, and, a, and a reminder that we should all be surprised at just how enduring um, the notion is that the states are in control of public health. Finally, there is a, another side of the coin to your answer, and that is the actions inside the states themselves. 
where it appears, at least for now, the state legislatures are revisiting the delegation of authority in their own states. And you mentioned Cuomo, et cetera. And uh, even here in Texas, you have uh, Texas Republicans uh, concerned with um, what they believe to be the abuse of authority that they gave to the Texas governor in the 1970s. And they are seriously considering rewriting the statute having to do with emergencies um, uh, under, under state law. Okay, uh, Alex, um, go ahead, Alex. Um, hi, Professor Bailey, thank you again for the lecture. Um, I spent the summer of 2020 working at my state's Medicaid office, I'm from Louisiana, and we um, were on these weekly calls with CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, in which the perennial question was, will they renew the state of emergency? And the perennial answer was, I'm pretty sure they will. So basically we were operating on this function of the executive continuing to renew the state of emergency, which expanded our power and ability to provide healthcare for people who had lost their coverage when they lost their jobs or during the pandemic when they had just experienced financial difficulties. So basically that was a major expansion of the power of the administrative state. And this was operated by a state, but under the purview of the federal government. So my question is whenever this whole pandemic hopefully ends, I'm kind of agnostic about the end of COVID, but whenever this is over, how will the administrative state and this massive expansion of federal administrative powers start to contract and go back to sort of, do you think it will go back to a state that was equal or higher than where we were before? Yeah, so, so, so your question is, is it, a, is it like a ratchet? Does it, does it only move in one direction? Um, the answer is probably, uh, but let me, let me ask a question. Are you, are you well, you're, you're talking about mostly is budgetary stuff, right? So, so your, your, your office is, is dependent on the, the state of emergencies providing funding for your office to provide the healthcare to people. Is that, is that, is that what you're talking about? So when, is, if, if so, when the answer, yes, you, yeah. yeah, wouldn't the answer just be when the funding runs out, it runs out? Come on back. Well, basically, there's this massive expansion of coverage of people who now have Medicaid. And so they'll have to start ratcheting either back on their mm -hmm. requirements or they'll have to start ratcheting up the number of people that they cover in now, a sort of permanent way. Was this addressed in the legislation that was passed yesterday? Do you know? I mean, is this, is this part of that? Um, I don't know about yesterday's legislation. Yeah. Probably is. Probably more money there, but. A question from uh, Tyler Moore. Tyler, can you unmute yourself? Tyler is a PhD student here at Notre Dame. Yes, hello everybody. Thanks, thanks again for your talk. Um, yeah, so my question I think is a, is a riff on many other questions that have come through, but it, it's, uh, it seems we're talking a lot about how federalism and kind of the system we have doesn't respond very well to public emergencies, right? And now, especially in this case, you know, the United States, uh, you know, partly because of the federal system, partly because we're this huge nation with all these ports of entry didn't do well in, you know, responding to the COVID crisis. Sorry. I, 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 I want to I just, before you ask your question, I, I do think that the premise is one that I would like to, to, to maybe potentially challenge. And that is the presumption that the United States did not do well has to be tested by some example of a place that did do well and, and i'm you know right. that that, that uh, example of a of a non-federal country that did really well because they're non-federal 
uh, I think would make the question really good, but I'm not sure that that example exists. But anyway, all right, so go ahead. Fair enough. I mean, I think that's it's maybe, part, you know, part of my question is, you know, whether that's whether that's so or just just assume that that's so. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess one thing that I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you kind of have this like history of um, the state's police power uh, being uh, inclusive of public health. Uh, but you know, there's really nothing stopping Congress from from doing something here. Right. I mean, under I mean, we kind of have the historical support that suggests this would go to the states. But, you know, with the Commerce Clause, I mean, I can't imagine that it would have been very difficult to make some argument that this uh, affects interstate commerce in lots of ways. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? That's a great question. Or to go back to my um, um, the National Defense or the Defense Production Act. Um, the four titles that Congress is allowed to expire. Um, so what happens uh, when Biden wants to use uh, power that would have been allowed under one of those titles, for example, wage and price controls, um, but it's no longer authorized, uh, but he's got a clever reading uh, of some other statute that you kind of put the two together and you might get there. Uh, and that, and we know what the answer to that is: is that uh, a conservative uh, district judge will issue an injunction, and then it'll 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 sort of be on hold for a while. Um, that's one way to think about your question. The, the, the bigger question is: is why can't Congress just pass a law? And I guess the question I, I look back to you is: um, you know. Um, Maybe the, 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 the most clear questions is why can't Congress pass a law, like for example, for a mask mandate? Um, and, you know, again, that's, it's, it's, it's seems um, to me, it's, 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 it's telling that that hasn't been on the table. Yeah, I guess, I mean, and this is where my question, I think dovetails with, um, Professor Caesar's question, where I wonder if this is kind of a historical contingency where the momentum got going for state control and governors having all this power and, you know, under Trump. And now that Biden comes in, it'd be hard to reverse that. I don't I don't know if there's a constitutional barrier to reversing that. But now we kind of have this momentum. The other direction is it's kind of what I wonder. Yeah. And the momentum, the momentum has a kind of irony to it in the sense that Newsom and Cuomo um, and Whitmer were, 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 were seen as the anti-Trumps. Uh, and so they were the, they were the, it, it was good that they had this, this leverage. Um, and uh, so, so it was kind of heroic, um, heroic federalism uh, as, as opposed to, as, as opposed to uh, evil federalism. Uh, so see, yeah, maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe, maybe a dynamic of 2020 is, is that uh, the heroic federalism uh, was, was a necessary part, part of the, the, the feature. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd have to chew on that more, but, but, I, but I, I like it. Don't know that that heroic federalism has been used too much in the state of Michigan, but maybe that's another, another debate for another time. I, I'm using the word ironically. Um, this doesn't translate in Zoom maybe, but yes. Yeah. Um, uh, everyone, please join me in thanking uh, Professor Bailey. Uh, We'll be back in a few weeks. We're going to have a debate on the Electoral College. I believe that's on April 1st. So um, you'll look for more information for that. Uh, Thanks again to my class and thanks again to Professor Bailey.